for the next four weeks, we're going to concentrate on the essentials of the gospel message. Several times over the last few years, we've spent entire sermons answering the question, what is the gospel? The core focus of who we are as the Vine Church in three words. And so I've had a couple of series that I've led us through where we've done gospel, community, and mission one week at a time. And so we spent sometimes an entire sermon talking about what is the gospel. Um, It's on our logo. It's something that I want to continue to reiterate because it is a foundational aspect of who we are as a church. Those three words, gospel, community, and mission. We are a people who proclaim the gospel, who build each other up in community, and who send each other out on mission. I'd considered doing another three weeks on those three ideas, but this time I wanted to spend some time digging a little deeper into at least the gospel. In the past, sometimes when I've spent a sermon explaining what is the gospel, I've often used four concepts that we can break the gospel message down into. Those four words are God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, response. Four aspects of the gospel, four parts of the gospel. Now, just to be clear, it is not necessary for you to break the gospel down into those four parts. We can systematize it in other ways. We can present it differently. But if you are a Christian then we ought to have a succinct yet thorough understanding of what stands at the heart of our faith, the gospel message. Over Thanksgiving break, uh, we were able to catch up with the Wakefields for a little bit. John and Mary Ann um, and their family were a part of the vine um, when we moved from our basement to the Moose Lodge. They moved to North Carolina later that summer, and so our time with them was a little bit short, but, um, but I've always been greatly encouraged by their family. And so you may not have known this about John, but he's a writer. He's written several books. Um, And one of those books that he finished this year was a book on communication. It's geared toward IT professionals. So maybe, you know, nothing will be good for you and people that maybe you could pass it on to some other people (laughs) who may need it uh, a lot. Um, But the concepts in it aren't just for IT professionals. There's still concepts that can deal with anybody. Um. Most of us. So here's where I'm going with this. One of the things John mentions in the book is the need for clarity of thought. When we are able to be concise while still being thorough, what people experience from us is confidence. What they sense is confidence. Exuding confidence helps to build trust with those we're conversing with, whether professionally or casually. Now, we don't have to be robotic in how we speak. And I think if you have ever heard me speak, which all of y'all have, you know that I'm usually not very robotic. Uh, you know, we don't have to say the same thing the same way every single time. But when it comes to the message of the gospel, when it comes to the basics of our faith, sometimes we're content with just rambling explanations. Sometimes we just assume that people have an innate understanding of some of the basics that we take for granted. But this is not always the case. And it's probably not even regularly the case. 
Just because we live in the South does not mean that your neighbors and coworkers understand who God is and what he's done and then how that intersects with their lives. I mean, let's be honest, right? Oftentimes, we don't understand how what God has done intersects with our own lives, or, or at least we don't live in such a way that we show that we understand it. That's why for so many of us, our religion consumes approximately two hours of our week and the other hundred plus waking hours are spent on whatever else we fancy. But the message of the gospel is a message that penetrates to the very core of our existence. It pierces to the very bottom of our hearts. What we do here together on Sundays and in our own time studying God's word and studying God's word together throughout the week is we examine this relationship, the relationship between God's word and our own hearts, the relationship between God's word and the heart of a fellow member, the relationship between God's word and the heart of the person we're witnessing to. So in order to make sure that we are understanding and then communicating the gospel appropriately and effectively, these four words and the ideas they convey are really helpful to ensure that we don't miss the basics. When we proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to others, I have found this to be a memorable and helpful way to package it. These four basic pillars of the gospel, God, man, Christ, response. So each week for the next four weeks, we'll take a look at each word and idea in turn. And I want my intention here to be clear. Over the next four weeks, I want to equip each of us to be able to understand and proclaim the message of the gospel. So this week, we're concentrating on God. And I figure the best place to begin an explanation of God is in Genesis chapter 1. So if you haven't already, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We are going to read one verse. Genesis 1.1. It'll take a long time to get through the Bible at this pace. <laughs> Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the easiest verses to memorize, by the way, because so many of us have heard it so much, but even so, it's short, it's quick, it's succinct, and it has a lot to it. A.W. Tozer, who was one of our authors of a book that we read a couple few months ago, says, one of his most famous quotes, what you think of when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think of when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In one of my seminary classes, there were about 40 of us in the room, and the professor wanted us to list out the attributes of God, one word descriptors of God. So we started in the front of the class and went person by person and wrote on the board each of our responses. What is God? How would you describe God? But the problem was we couldn't repeat someone else's answer. Now, this wouldn't be a problem if you're at the front of the class. And it shouldn't be a problem in general, right? But you know how it is when you're put on the spot and you're not expecting to have to do something. And if you know me well, then you know that I'm the type of student who sits towards the back of class. Less likely to get noticed by the teacher, easier to slip in and out. Anyways, I think you catch the problem I was beginning to face. I'm sitting there stressing, 
trying to think of a new word, a new descriptor of God. So I'm going to have us do the same thing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not really going to have us do the same thing. Wouldn't do that to y'all. Well, we could if we wanted to. But it was, it was a helpful one. <laughs> Sorry, there was a stink bug. Like, right <laughs> I figured there was some sort of animal over there or something. It's like, it's like I, well, it can't be a mouse because I think there would be a little bit more freaking out and happening. <laughs> so it's like, uh, way to go. All right, crisis averted. Look at that. Miracles do happen. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, descriptors of God, right? We'll start with Nathaniel. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it was. It's, <laughs> right? So, but this was, you know, I mean, doing that, it was a helpful exercise, right, to get everyone focused. I mean, you really were paying attention, like, oh, no, what did that person say? Oh, no, and I've got to come up with another one because that's what I was going to use. Right? I mean, it's just kind of, uh, Right, and so often we have our sort of pet terms for God, you know, our our just cliche words that we have come across and that we tend to use, or just a limited vocabulary to describe God. One way this comes out is in how, is in how we pray. Right, one of the best patterns for prayer that we can have, um, I think, is that acronym ACTS: A C T S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. The A is where you begin your prayer: Adoration. Right? It's appropriate and beneficial for us to begin to think about God when we pray. And when we think about God, we ought to enter into a state of adoration, a state of praise, a state of wonder and amazement, marveling at the majesty of God, at his holiness, his splendor, his perfection. But how often do we begin to pray and we start to just ask for things? Or we start with thanking God for this day and for this food and for the hands that prepared it. How often do we skip to the part about us? Isn't it appropriate to think about God for who he is and not just what he's done? Right, one way to think about this a little bit more. Why do you love your spouse if you're married? Why do you love your spouse? If you had to answer that, if I put you on the spot, which is probably even worse than trying to come up with a 40th descriptor for God. Right? Would, what would you say? W- would you begin to list off the things they do for you? Or would you begin to list off who they are? Who they are is what makes them so special to you, right? Certainly. If all you can think of is what they do, then what happens when they stop doing that stuff? Or they can't do that stuff anymore? Now, I mean, we can say this is a little bit of, of splitting hairs, and this whole idea, but if when we think about God, all we think about is what he's done, and especially only what he's done for us, or what he can do for us, we're missing so much about him. When it comes to describing God to someone else, especially to someone unfamiliar with biblical truths, I think the simplest and best place to start is God as creator. God is the creator. The only creator. Everything begins with God. Right? And so I would encourage us to use Genesis 1.1 as the best reference for this. Right? The person might ask, what is God? And, and you say, not so much what, but who. Who? Because he is not impersonal. 
he is relatable. He's not just an abstract idea or an unrecognizable force. He did not just create everything and then step away from it all. We can relate to him because he is still working in his creation. There's so much that we can know about him because he has revealed himself to us. And the first way that we come to know God is in the Bible as creator. Now, naturally, we relate to God through what he has created. But God is not contained by created things or limited by created things. God himself was not created. He is the creator. And he created everything out of nothing. Some of y'all are artists in the room uh, of, of the particular, you know, like painting and uh, making things that people buy <laughs> sort of realm, right? But artists create from what's already existing, right? I mean, you can say I, I created art, but not in the same sense that God creates. Now, it's great some of the things that are created. Some of them are new, right? Some, some new styles of art, some of which I have no idea what's even happening, right? And some of it you can appreciate. I, I'm, I'm working to appreciate art more and more. I've been to the Arts Depot a few times over the last couple months um, for various reasons. But it's amazing to see some of the things that people can do. And some local people, what they're able to do, how they're able to put something down on a canvas that looks just like a real object or do something abstract that is, you know, a fun, quirky idea. I mean, I even saw a giant painting of pals, right? You know, it was, they were trying to sell it for a lot of money and I don't know if they're going to get that, but you know, it might be some pals enthusiast who would be like, yes, this is a great piece of art. They've created something genuinely wonderful. I wouldn't, buy it, but, you know, someone might, right? You can say it and you can appreciate it, and I can appreciate it partially for the fact that I know I couldn't do that. And so you say, wow, look at the colors they've used. Look at the different mediums that they used. Look at what they did this on, right? I mean, a lot of us know Kevin. He has painted some stuff on some barnwood, you know, and it's pretty cool, the things that he's done, But that sort of creative process we get from the bigger idea and from this notion that God created everything out of nothing. There, there wasn't a medium that he started using that had already existed. No, he created the medium that he then used to mold into shape and to put into what it is today. God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase there at the end, the heavens and the earth, it's what we call a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. A merism. Apparently, my word processing document doesn't know that word. And either does dictionary.com either, by the way, um, for some reason. right? So a merism is a figure of speech we're two opposite ends of a, of a spectrum, right? Like two polar opposites are given to describe not just those two opposites, but everything else in between, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but God didn't just create the heavens and the earth. 
He created those things and everything in between. Anything that would fall in between the heavens and the earth. He created all of it. And that's what Moses means when he writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. Everything that is made, he made. God is the creator. But maybe even before we got there, we should have simply mentioned the fact that God exists. In the beginning, God. God is there in the beginning because he was there before the beginning happened. God exists and has always existed, even before time began. We exist because he has caused us to exist. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul tells the people in Athens in Acts 17. There is nothing that happens outside of his plan and purpose. All things are working toward his plan and purpose. And so perhaps we should have even taken a step further back in verse 1, and say, in the beginning. In the beginning implies that there is an end. So the story begins with God, and he has a purpose in what he's doing. There will be an end. God is the creator who has a purpose. And we can see some of that purpose and design in verse 1 by itself, but then also in the rest of chapter 1. He creates light and land and plants and animals and humans. God is a creator who has a purpose. And I think that may be one of the simplest ways that we can begin to describe God to someone else. And we can show him, even just from the first verse in this book that we treasure so deeply, where this foundation starts. So often, I think, in ways that I have heard the gospel presented in the past, um, or something like the Romans Road, which I mentioned a few times in our time in Romans, um, where you begin, you tend to begin with something like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you start, you start with sin before you even really get to God. Like, maybe you should start with the back end of that verse first, Right? for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we really should start with the glory of God, which is actually a bit of where Paul does start Romans in Romans 1, talking about how God created everything and God runs everything. But then man started messing that stuff up. Man said, no, I think my idea is a little bit better than yours, God. When man started trying to create images of God out of created things, instead of realizing that you can't put God into some little object. Where we have to begin when we begin talking about the message of the gospel is with God, because otherwise, what are we, what are we referencing? When we say, for all have sinned, we've sinned in reference to what? In reference to who? So when we begin our proclamation of the gospel message, it ought to begin with helping people to understand who God is. And I would suggest that one way, perhaps, that we should do this, whenever we are proclaiming the gospel message to someone who does not believe, who does not understand the gospel, is to ask them what they do believe about God. Is not just to start blurting out truths that we know, but helping 
our own minds to understand where they're coming from, where they're starting, what misconceptions they have. And there likely are a lot of misconceptions. There are a lot of things. There are a lot of churches around here who call themselves churches who do not believe about God what we believe. They do not see God in the way that we see him in Scripture. And so perhaps we should do a little bit of work and ask the questions to understand where where do I need to begin? But one of the things, if we're just if we have an open canvas to work with, so to speak, as we've sort of mentioned before, in someone's heart and mind, is that God is the creator who has a purpose. Now there are a lot of words that we could use and time that we can spend talking about God. I mean, to try and say that I am doing an entire sermon on God and that's sufficient is woefully inadequate. Right? I mean, we are... I've really only talked about one verse so far, right? And <laughs> like, and I haven't even gone through all the things that could be talked about in that one verse about God. Much less the other... Five trillion verses that there are in the Bible, approximately. But one of the things that I've used in the past and that I would encourage um, is how God has revealed himself specifically and specifically early on in his ministry to the people of Israel. We find one of the first instances of this in Exodus 33. Now, I'm going to give you a ton of references. If you want to write these down, I'm going to try to flip through them and read each of them, but you don't have to do that unless you just want to try to keep up with whatever pace I decide to go at, or I'm able to go at, because I don't have these marked in my Bible. Um, But feel free to, to write these down. I think this is one way to clearly show who God has revealed himself to be and who his people have understood him to be as revealed time and time again, especially in the Old Testament. And these truths we still find absolutely to be the case in the New Testament. Exodus 33, 19. I'll start reading verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Right, so maybe we're answering that Romans 3.23 question. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what is God's glory? And he said, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 34.6, continuing on in that interaction between God and Moses. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Numbers 14, 18. Numbers 14, 18 
says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Second Chronicles 39. Second Chronicles 39. You'll notice a pattern here. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Nehemiah 9, 17 and 9, 31. Nehemiah 9, 17 and 31. I'll start reading verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Then verse 31, that same chapter Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 86, I like because it's a great number, great year. Um, so it's easy for me to remember. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 111, 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Psalm 112, verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Psalm 145, 8. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Isaiah 30, 18. Actually, doing a lot better at this than I thought I would have, having not marked these. But I did win some Bible drills when I was younger back in the day. <laughs> Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Joel two thirteen. Now I'm never going to find Joel because I made that comment. Joel two thirteen. Joel is not a big book. Joel 2, 13. I'll read verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Jonah, probably one of my favorite mentions of this whole idea in 
the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. All of these from a lot of different places in the Old Testament literally say the same thing about God. If there is something, if there is one sort of continued pattern of the way that God desires his people to view him as, his creation to view him as, even and especially in the Old Testament, rightfully so, he wants to be known and is by a backslidden prophet like Jonah, to be a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So often people do not understand God to be that way. They do not view God when they think of God. They do not think of God as one who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But just for an instance, take Jonah's situation as an example of explicitly a time when God called his people to proclaim a message That, look, danger is upon you. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Bad things are coming because of the sin that you have been involved in in throughout your entire life. But know me to be a God who sends my prophet to speak my word to you. To declare to you, not just that you're going to die and then you die, but that you have an opportunity to respond to the message that I am giving because I am a God, he says, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when you think about God, when you are explaining to someone, who is God to you? I think this ought to be One of the things that comes to mind pretty early on, if you're spending any amount of time explaining who God is, and not just for the fact that it's a nice, fluffy message, not that it's using the words that people want to hear these days, but it's the words that we needed to hear ourselves. It's the words that we have come to recognize. We needed God to be gracious and merciful because we had fallen short of his glory, because we have sinned. But God, in his great mercy, even while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us, and Christ did. 
come to die for us. And he offers us that salvation. And all that's required from us is to believe that he is who he says he is and to repent, to turn away from the sins that we had been following and to turn to him. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to prove it. We don't have to walk an aisle. We don't have to be baptized. We don't have to ask for forgiveness from all the people that we've wronged in our lives. Now, those things we will end up doing. We should end up doing. But we don't even have to do those to receive the salvation that God is offering to us. And so this is the message that we want to proclaim, and it begins with this God who has created everything, who has made everything with a purpose and a plan in mind. And as we have come through another Christmas season and are looking forward to another new year, hopefully one with less variance or no variance, let's remind ourselves and encourage one another of these truths and of the opportunity that we have to know them and to declare them, to proclaim the gospel to ourselves, to our family members, and to others that we meet out in the community. What an opportunity we have to do that, to explain that. And so I pray that you're encouraged by this and that we would spend some time this week contemplating more about who God is, deepening our own prayer lives, deepening our understanding, and then living it out as we've come to know him, to understand him more in the ways that he has revealed himself truly to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us where we're not left trying to figure out who you are and what you've done, but you've made it clear and you've repeated yourself. You've begun exactly where we needed you to begin in your word, and there is only one true way that we can come to understand you. And so we pray that your spirit would open up our hearts and our minds to continue to receive your revealed truth. Help us, God, as your people to understand your truth well, to rehearse it in our minds so that when we are asked to give reason for the hope that is within us that we would have it ready. We would have a concise yet thorough explanation in the time that they give to us. The door that you've opened to us in their hearts and in their minds to proclaim it boldly and convincingly as much as we can. God, we pray that as your spirit works in our hearts and minds, to continue to help us to know you, that you would open up the hearts and minds of those 
who you've put in our path. Those doors that you open, we would walk through them with boldness and courage. And that through us, you would you would save people. You would redeem people. You would bring people into the fold of being your children. God, use us. We ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.